Our Father, it's a joy to consider our relationship to you, particularly uh, during this special time of the year when the focus is on the birth of Christ. Our Father, the word Emmanuel is so meaningful to us. God with us, the one who came to dwell in our midst and to dwell in each of our hearts and lives, and the one whose light will be the light of the entire new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. And Father, as we study these passages of Scripture from the days of Moses, we see that the concern was for God in their midst also. We're thankful that you have chosen not just to create us and to leave us go on our own, but to dwell with us and to guide us and to strengthen us and to call us to be your people. And as your people, we would submit to you today and pray that our ears will be attuned to your voice and our hearts will be ready to be changed in whatever way you would choose this day to make us more into the people you want us to be. Father, we ask that throughout our Sunday school this hour, you'll be very present and in the service that you will minister through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read from Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 5. Although this passage of Scripture is not specifically an Advent or Christmas passage in many ways, it bears the same kind of focus because it's dealing with God manifesting who He is to His people in a very special way. And even though we live in a time and in a place where Christmas is greatly profaned, we can trust that the message of Christmas, of Christ's coming, and the purpose of His coming will touch many lives during the end of this year. I'd like to read beginning uh, at verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and do thou pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as thy, thine own possession. As Moses had the encounter with God that's recorded in the 33rd chapter of Exodus, we now see it followed up by this, a second encounter, probably juxtaposed very closely as far as time is concerned, there on Mount Sinai. God has commanded Moses to come back up the mountain and to bring two tablets, which he has chiseled out of the rock, for God to write the Ten Commandments on since the first were shattered at the base of the mountain. And as Moses comes to the top of the mountain and stands there, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord comes down upon him. And the Lord, of his own initiative, displays what we read this morning in this passage before Moses. Uh, 
And of course, we have to realize that as God spoke these words to Moses, and as we read in the sixth verse, the Lord God, He proclaims His name and then proclaims compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and in truth. These are words which describe to us the nature of God. They help us to understand the character of God. The only way by which we can understand God in, in our day is through the Word of God. And so we have to take words and, and they have to mean in our heart uh, the realities of who God is. But we also read this verse which sometimes can be distorted to make God to appear something that He is not, as we read in the seventh verse where we read, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and implied there is of generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. I mentioned at the very end of class last Sunday that this is not, as it might appear to be, a statement of God's vindictiveness, nor is it a state, statement of guilt by association. God does not punish the third and fourth generations because of what the father or the grandfather or the great-grandfather did. Because as we noted uh, from uh, repeated statements actually in the Pentateuch, God makes it very clear that the one who sins pays for his own sin. And there is to be no attachment of one person's sin to another person. So, what does this passage mean? Well, there are three ways by which we can, three important teachings at least, I think we can derive from this single verse. And I looked at the first one last time, and I'll just uh, restate it briefly, and that is this, this verse teaches us something of the patience of God, the patience of God. In allowing generation after generation to pass in many instances before judgment comes. Ample time and ample warning is always given by God before He institutes punishment. As God said to Abraham when He promised to Abraham that His people would, would come out of Egypt one day and would inherit Canaan, but it would be a 400-year hiatus in between, God gave the reason. He said, because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was going to give the Amorite peoples, which is a generic name for all of the different tribal peoples who lived in Canaan, another 400 years to repent if they would do so. God, of course, in His great omniscience knew they wouldn't. But, of course, they wouldn't know that themselves individually. And so this, this passage teaches us something of the patience of God. He, he doesn't just knee-jerk react you know, to sin, obviously. He deals with it in his time and after ample opportunity has been given to repent. Secondly, I think this passage is one of contrast. Contrast. God's loving kindness lasts for a thousand generations in contrast to his wrath, which lasts for only three to four generations. Along these lines, Kylan Delich, the old... Uh, 19th century commentators uh, give some valuable insight here. They say this about this passage. All the words which the language contained to express the idea of grace in its varied manifestations to the sinner are crowded together here. 
And of course, they're referring to, as I read a minute ago, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and grace and justice. In order to reveal the fact that in his inmost being, God is love. But in order that grace may not be perverted by the sinner into a ground of wantonness, justice is not lacking even here with its solemn threatenings, although it only follows mercy to show that mercy is mightier than wrath and that holy love does not punish until sinners despise the riches of the goodness, patience, and long-suffering of God. How many times have we thought that if we were God, we would not wait so long before we struck the dirty sinners down? You know? But God knows our frame, and he knows, as the psalmist says, that we are but dust. Sure, Jesus Christ came, and Jesus Christ walked on this earth, and, and Jesus Christ was subjected to the temptations that we were and the pressures that we are. But, but even without Jesus coming, God knew who we were. God created us. And God understood who we were and who we are. And so God's wrath is held back, but his love is ever pouring forth moment by moment all the time, like a bubbling fountain of clear water to the, to the dying of thirst. I think thirdly, though, that this passage is a, straight, is a statement of universal truth. Rebels tend to beget rebels. The sin of the fathers is so often taken up by the son and the grandson and the great-grandson. It seems to be perpetuated generation after generation. It's an infection which is very difficult to halt. Sometimes several generations pass before a particular sin, be it adultery or gambling or, or, or drunkenness or lying or whatever it is. It might be generations before somehow that is broken in that lineage. And of course, when it is broken, it's broken by the sovereign power of Almighty God. Well, in receiving this manifestation of God's power and God's grace and God's love and God's character here, Moses is absolutely overwhelmed and he falls on his face before God as everyone throughout the scripture always did when faced with a manifestation of God. They were flat on their face before God. And again, what does he do? He does what he has done so many times. He prays for his people. He intercedes for Israel. Again, that I think just keeps reminding us of what is one of our principal duties as believers? To intercede. That's one of our principal duties. If intercession is not important to us, then we're failing in what God has called us to do in, in a very large area. And, and we're failing in what helps to propel the church forward, pr propel foreign missions forward to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Moses had witness this, this powerful demonstration of law, God's love and grace, and it stimulated him to pray with renewed hope. This is what God is like. I mean, Moses saw it in a new way, and he admitted that Israel was a stiff-necked and obstinate people. But notice how he prays. He doesn't say, oh God, forgive the dirty rats. He says, Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as thine own possession. Moses puts himself in the sandals of his people. 
Why does he do that? Well, I think he does that as a true intercessor, but he also, I think, recognizes that although he was not a participant in the, the golden calf incident, he nevertheless was a sinner before God Almighty, and he knew it better than the people did because he had just witnessed a display of God's character. The closer we walk with God, the more we realize what kind of sinners we really are. It reminds me of... of uh, kind of an illustration that came to me years ago, and I don't remember if I heard it someplace or thought it up or wherever it's been in there so long. But um, it's kind of like when you're first saved, you're, you're in this room, and there's a lot of furniture in this room, but there's only a teeny, teeny little candle burning, and that's the light of grace that's come into your life. And as you look around the room, you can kind of make out the furniture and so forth, but you can't see much detail. And as you walk with God, the light gets brighter. And the more you walk with God, the brighter the light gets until the light gets to the place where you not only see the, the stark reality of what's in this room, but you see the dust on the furniture. <laughs> and and as, as we walk closer to God, you know, when Jesus said to Peter, you are clean, but you're not all clean. And he wanted to wash his feet as a symbol of, of what it meant to, to be a servant one to the other. Uh, Jesus was implying that you are forgiven of your sin, but every day you pick up new sin and that needs to be cleansed so that you can continue to be the channel that God wants you to be. So Moses has had this experience and he knows that he is a sinner even though he hadn't bowed down to any golden calf or practiced what Israel had practiced in the worship of that image. Notice that he does not plead for justice here. Pleads for mercy from Yahweh, who has just displayed to him the essence of his character, loving kindness and truth, patience and grace. These are the characteristics of God Almighty. The great cry of his heart was that God would accept or in reality reclaim Israel as his chosen people, as his inheritance, because Moses knew that if God would reclaim Israel, that God would be in the midst of Israel. And that was Moses' great concern and great prayer. How can I lead this people if you're not in the middle? If you're not here in the midst, how can I lead them? He knew he wasn't going to lead this rebellious group of people out through the desert into some uh, promised land. They could only be gotten there by God's power. Well, let's read beginning at verse 10, the next few verses here in chapter 34 of Exodus. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself, that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars, and smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their Asherim. For you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, 
and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. I, I think one of the most important things for us to understand is the balance between uh, viewing God as a harsh and, and uh, vindictive being, as some interpret uh, the Old Testament uh, Yahweh to be, uh, who lack understanding, and understanding at the same time that God is not a pussycat, that God uh, does require hard things of his people, hard things. When Israel goes in to conquer the land, that is not going to be an easy thing. How would you and I react if God were to say, go in there and slaughter them all? But God did not do that because God is a mean and, and vicious God. He did it because he knew what it would take for his people to walk by faith. God is God of love, and he does not like to see the death of anyone, particularly that of his saints. But God requires hard things, and that's why the whole sacrificial system was established. It was a hard thing to slay that lamb at the Passover time because that lamb had been in your household for several days before you, slay, you slew that lamb. It was a hard thing. But God's reasoning was sin is an awful thing. And that's how awful it is. It requires hard things to demonstrate repentance. In response to Moses' great intercessory prayer here, which God himself had stimulated again and again, I, you know, I, I know many times it just keeps showing up. We don't intercede because we're such good people. Oh, yes, God, I'm such a good person. I'm a great prayer, so I'm going to intercede, and you're going to listen, and you're going to do that. No. We intercede because God puts it in our heart to do so. And it is God who works through us and gives us the vision and the faith. Pray. And so why does Moses pray for his people? Because God has just displayed his glory before Moses, his, his name, his reality. And, and it, in Moses, it evokes this, this prayer of intercession. And God, as a result, renews his covenant with Israel. And then he foretold of the fact he was going to perform mighty miracles in their midst in the days and years ahead. And he says these miracles, in effect, are going to be greater than any miracles you have seen so far. Can you imagine? They'd seen the Red Sea parted. They'd been fed in the wilderness. Uh, they had seen e Egypt prostrated by disastrous things that God had done. And yet they're going to see mightier, miracle, mightier miracles than that? Whoa. <laughs> that was something to look forward to. It was an amazing, amazing promise. God furthermore says that these miracles are going to convince the Gentiles of the reality and power of God. He doesn't say that it's going to convert them. He just simply says it will convince them of the power and reality of God. In Egypt, the Egyptians became quite convinced that the God of Israel was very, very powerful. But did that make a lot of believers out of Egyptians? Probably not. We don't know. Scripture doesn't give us any details about that, but it certainly didn't make a believer out of Pharaoh. I mean, he just knew he was beaten, but it didn't make him a believer in the God of Israel. The promised miracles were primarily wrapped up in the fact that God was going to take this motley little group of ex-slaves through the desert 
and he was going to deliver a settled land into their hands. A land that was inhabited by, as we read that list of people, the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Perizzites, the various forms of, Can of Amorites and Canaanites who lived in the land. Now, they lived in cities with walls. They had armies with chariots. I, I mean, they were a prepared people. They were a settled people. And so this bunch of beggars from the desert was going to go in and take them over? Not without mighty miracles from God. And that's, of course, what he is referring to here. They were not only less numerous than the, land, than the people of the land, they were militarily insignificant in comparison. It would be like the United States going to war with Monaco or Liechtenstein or someplace, you know. In hindsight, these miracles, as well as these warnings, elicited the praise from the psalmist. I'd like to just read one of those examples in the 135th Psalm. We have some statements there that kind of tie in with this directly. Psalm 135, beginning at verse 8. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations. He slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Thy name, O Lord, is everlasting. Thy remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nation are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. The psalmist is, of course, summarizing what had happened in Egypt, and then this whole victory of Israel over the Canaanites, mightier and more powerful people than they, and yet Israel, this, this, these desert vagabonds, would, would win and would establish themselves. And God, of course, as, as we see in this passage, warns them against the gods of uh, the pagan Canaanites. And, and then the psalmist tells us the reason. I mean, they were just gold and silver. There's nothing to them. And, and their end will be the same as their, those who believe in them. Well, God, in this passage in Exodus, made it clear that in response to all that he was doing and was going to do for Israel, in response for these mighty miracles, he expected one thing from Israel, obedience. He expected obedience. He would drive out the enemy, but Israel was to make no covenants with them or allow the vestiges of their pagan worship to remain. Why? These are very, very important prohibitions. Because God knew that if you make a covenant with someone, you are implying that there is merit in these people, that there is worthiness in these people because you have made a covenant with them. And it would establish a give and take relationship. The give part is all right, but the take is not all right. Such a relationship would become a snare to Israel. They faced this trap earlier. Let me, let me just go back to Genesis chapter 34 
and read how this thing nearly drew, drug them down one time before, this very same thing that God is warning them against. In the 34th chapter of Genesis, beginning at verse 1, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, and remember the Hivites are one of the peoples they're supposed to destroy in the land, Israel, when they get there, the prince of the land saw her and took her and lay with her by force. And he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor and said, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem's longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage, and intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land will be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. I mean, Satan was just hissing every one of those words. Come and stay here, you know. I mean, the idea was plant them here, and they will not go on to the destiny that God has ordained for Israel. Compromise them right now. Well, a couple of the sons, you may remember, and without going on and reading the, the passage, Levi and Simeon uh, set a trap and uh, destroyed the uh, Hivites there as a result of, of this. And, and what we're talking about here is similar to what God is ordering Israel to do, but not by treachery. Simeon and Levi did it by treachery, and, and later Jacob would prophesy that uh, this treachery would come down on their heads. But Israel was to wipe out the pagan peoples of the land. And they were to destroy these vile pagan cultures because if they did not, they would compromise and pollute Israel. It's like the illustration I've used before and you've heard so many times. How many drops of ink in a clear glass does it take to start to discolor the clear water? How many drops of clear water in a glass of ink does it take to purify that glass of ink? doesn't take much sin from the Canaanites to destroy Israel, but it would take a long time for Israel to impact the Canaanites in a, in a compromising way of which this, you know, by fellowshipping with them and saying, your gods are okay, you worship your gods, I'll worship our gods, and one day you'll see that our God is better. The religion of these pagans would be particularly ensnaring to Israel. The Canaanite gods, as we've noted before, were fertility deities particularly Baal and Ashtart, which are referred to directly in this passage. They were worshipped with a focus on sensuality. Their worship involved male and female prostitution. It involved all kinds of sexual perversions. And that was part of the worship of these gods. And that sensual worship would have been very magnetic to the fleshly desires of the Israelites. I mean, the Israelites were human beings like everybody else. 
You know, and for anybody to say, oh, well, shoot, that stuff doesn't appeal to me at all. I mean, I can just walk right through it and not be phased as a fool. Many Israelites would be drawn into apostasy, and God knew it. Therefore, God warned them that as they drove out the Canaanites from the land, they were not only were not to make any covenants, they were to destroy everything left behind by those people, particularly their hilltop groves. And the phallic symbols that had to do with the worship of Ashtart, all of that was to be wiped out because God knew that it would pollute Israel. And to underscore this, God reminds them again of the second commandment. They were not to worship any other God because Yahweh is known as jealous, that is, as a jealous God. The Hebrew word, actually, which is used here for jealous, is only used five times in the Old Testament. In every instance, it refers to God. And what it does is it reveals to us the parallel between idolatry and adultery. We've heard, I, I'm sure, so many instances why it is God places such strong emphasis upon the, the true focus of marriage. And that is because the, the marriage parallels our relationship with God. Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ. And as adultery destroys a marriage relationship, so idolatry destroys the relationship between God and his people. And although you and I might not bow down to some heinous God and participate in some particular worship, we can become idolatrous by allowing other things to displace God. Particularly at this time of the year, we can get caught up in all this all this hokum about uh, all the stuff you got to get, you know, got to spend all this money and buy all these things and be in debt for six months of the year because of what you were supposed to give away at Christmas time and forget all about the fact that what's the purpose of the giving in the first place? Uh, to demonstrate the love of Christ and just giving a bunch of material objects doesn't necessarily do that. Materialism can become our God and, and we can be taken up with it too. And we have to resist that. Why is God's name jealous? because his jealousy was based in his love for his people. It wasn't that he was worried about being hurt by his people. He was worried about his people being destroyed because God will not force his people to do his will. And if they choose to chase after uh, another God, you know, he, he will apply the pressure, but it's the choice of the individual and he doesn't want to see them destroy themselves. He's not willing we, Scripture tells us that any should perish. He was not willing to allow his people to destroy themselves in idolatry. Well, just in case they didn't get the picture, I mean, remember, Moses is reporting all of this, this to the people as he comes down off the mountain. And because they might not really understand the importance of God's warning, he describes the whole scenario for, for them. You know, sometimes we don't get the picture, right? Why does God say I can't do this? Is he a cosmic killjoy or what, you know? Because we don't follow it step by step to its conclusion. And so God describes the whole thing. He says, if you make a covenant with the idolaters, you will begin attending their ceremonies. And then, of course, innocuously and, and not with real meaning, you will begin making sacrifices to their gods too. And then you'll be eating of their sacrifices and this will be followed by you taking of their pagan women into your homes. Those pagan women will come to your house. They will pervert your men. They will raise up the children in the way of the pagans. 
and thus Israel will be drugged into spiritual harlotry. Is God overreacting here? Is God kind of uh, painting the picture a whole, a whole lot more dark than reality would be? Well, I mean, what have they just done? You know, without being in the midst of a pagan people, out in the desert, all by themselves, they, worship, they, they create and worship this golden image and call it God. And, and remember, it, it said there they practice all this revelry. Where did they get this revelry stuff? It wasn't just having a happy time. I mean, they were out there doing sinfully uh, perverted things that were sexual in their orientation uh, in relationship to the worship of that golden calf. God's warning was based on his love for Israel. Whatever God says, whenever God says thou shalt not, it is because God loves his people. Because God knows if we allow these things into our lives, what will be the natural result? And we can protest from now until we die. Oh no, it won't affect me that way. God knows. He's all wise and we are not. Most of us are not very familiar with the handbook that came with the creation of the human race. Enough to know that we're capable of just about any sin in the book. What God wants is for his people to experience the fullness of his blessing by walking in obedience. God can bless us till it comes up one side and down the other and we're kind of floating in a sea of blessing if we're walking in obedience. But God cannot bless us if we are walking in disobedience because to do so would be to confirm us in our sin. In Habakkuk, Chapter 2, verse 4, we read, The righteous shall live by faith. Paul, of course, quoted that in Romans. And it was Luther's reading of that which later profoundly impacted Luther. The just shall live by faith. What does that mean? Well, certainly... It implies not only belief in God as he is proclaimed by the word of God, but it means obedience to God as required by the word of God. The just shall live by faith. That faith is not just an intellectual accepting of God. It's a choosing to follow the Lord of creation and to walk in the way which he has set before us. That is all implied in that word. We do not live by faith if we live in disobedience, period. In Romans 14, we read that whatever is not of faith is sin. Whoa. <laughs> Suddenly, we have to understand that that word faith cannot just mean believing that there is a God and that he is my Savior. It's got to mean a whole lot more than that because there's all kinds of things I could think of that I could do that couldn't be sin, if that were the simple definition of the word faith. But when the word faith implies also the obedient walking in the way that he set before me, then suddenly <laughs> numerous things fall outside the purview of what it means to live by faith. I think that it can be said that if there is no desire and no effort to obey God, that there is very little likelihood that true faith exists. It's not likely that person is a true believer. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I tell you. In the last verse that we read there in the 34th chapter of Exodus, I'm in Genesis. Hmm. You shall make 
for yourselves no molten gods is again a restatement of the second commandment, a portion of it. And of course, why is God saying this? Because it's exactly what they had just done. It made for themselves a molten god. Of course, as Aaron said, it just accidentally came out of the fire and they threw all the earrings in. But nevertheless, there was this molten god. And it had gotten them into very, very serious trouble. And so how many times does God have to say it? A lot of times. Verse 18 of Exodus 34. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month Abib. Before it is the month Abib, you came out of Egypt. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me, and all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. Verse 20, And you shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey, and if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest. And you shall celebrate the feast of weeks, that is, the firstfruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. And I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders. And no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of Passover to be left over until the morning. You shall bring the very first of the firstfruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk." Well, God has just spent a lot of time here telling Israel, informing Israel on how they were not to worship. They were not to go a-whoring after these pagan gods. But now God instructs them how they are to worship. The worship of God was not to be dull. It was to be full of joy. True, deep joy. And it was to be expressed in their festivals of worship. You know, sometimes it seems that Christianity gets a bad name because there are people, there are denominations where they go around with their chin on the ground the whole day long, and if anybody cracked a smile, why, the whole face would shatter. Uh, just kind of a true joy, joyless faith. Well, to me, that's not a faith that the just are to live by. Uh, that's not the true faith of God. The true faith of God is not one giant no carved in the sky. Don't touch, don't do, you know. Because obviously if we are doing what God's got us about doing, then we're less likely to be tempted to be off doing the things we shouldn't be. God wants His people to have joy. Because when we get to the New Jerusalem, we're not going to just sit around and groan about how dull it is up here, you know, nothing to do, no temptation around to liven up life. I mean, we're going to be excited out of our bodies, I think, uh, by what there is and who God is. We will never achieve full knowledge of God and what He can do and, and what He's all about throughout eternity because He is so, so great. But He wants us to learn a little joy down here. It's, it's joy to the world the Lord has come, not kill joy has come, you know, no fun anymore. 
And so what does God do? He reminds us, he reminds Israel of the Passover. Now, the Passover had a serious side to it, of course. But there was this, to be this week-long feast of unleavened bread that went on before the Passover. And they were to celebrate it. They were to do it in the month of Abib, which was the month in which it happened. It's kind of where March and April come together, right, in, in that framework. And, and that was when they left Egypt. Celebrate, you left Egypt. Included, of course, was to be the dedication to the Lord of every firstborn. And that wasn't to be a drag either. It was kind of like, it was hard for Hannah to give Samuel, but there was a joy for Hannah in giving Samuel. And part of the joy was the Lord gave her several other children. And that's the way God is. You walk in obedience and He just dumps it on you. Now, that doesn't mean life won't be hard along the way. You know, God can dump blessings on us in the midst of hard things. And we can be going through hard things and, and life can be very serious for you. But at the same time, God gives us that deep, incense, that deep sense of joy and contentment and peace inside, knowing that all thi- although the storm is, is raging outside, inside I have this peace because God is in control. And then God reminded them of the fourth commandment, that is, keeping the Sabbath. That's supposed to be a joyous thing, too, not just a big, oh, no, it's Sabbath, got to sit around, do nothing all day. It was to be a time when they celebrated the Lord and their thoughts were on God. Many may have a kind of a drag idea of worshiping the Lord because of their idea of who God is. If we really understand who God is, then it's a joy to contemplate Him because His every thought towards us is for our good. His every desire for us is is for our benefit. He's not up there just looking for us to make the next move so he can slap us, which is some people's view of God, unfortunately. That's one of the reasons Martin Luther changed, because he was born in a day when the, the, the view of God was that Jesus, I mean, Mary had to go and plead with Jesus that he won't do something terrible. Mary, Mary was that, that great loving intercessor who, who got God to do good things to his people. It's like Michelangelo's picture of Jesus in the Sistine Chapel up behind the the altar up there. I mean, Jesus is one angry dude as you see him coming back there. I mean, he's about ready to fry everybody. And and that's typical Catholic view of the Middle Ages of who God was and who Jesus was. He was no loving Savior. But that's not to be our view. Our view is to have joy to the world. The Lord has come. And he's in our midst, and he gives us peace. He's going to give us those things which we need to serve him effectively here, even in the midst of a decaying society and what is probably going to be a calamitous future for this country. Just think of it. How many people are now living in calamitous countries? How would you like to live in Bosnia and some of these places? And and to, to be able to worship the Lord in the midst of cannon fire and machine guns and all the rest of the stuff and rape and pillage and destruction that's going on. Why should we be forever free from that? I don't think we will. And yet, in the midst of it all, God usually births the church with greater peace and joy and, and uh, attractive power than in a society like ours. We'll look at the remaining portion of that chapter next Sunday.